What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This morning we have just a couple of short verses as our text. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 16 through 22. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16 to 22. Let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Uh, we stand because we're recognizing the authority of the word. It's an inspiration, it's inerrancy, and it's of infallibility before us. Listen now to the word of the only true and living God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May God add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His holy word. Amen. You may be seated. All right, church, we come today to uh, some of our favorite verses in all of the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. These are, these are chestnut verses. These are memory verses. These are the verses that you've known since you were a child. These are verses that are very familiar to us, at least I would hope you already know this text fairly well, especially verses 16 to 18, because these are the kind of Bible verses that Christians tend to put on t-shirts we make up t-shirts for ourselves with these words. We put them on Christian bumper stickers and we place them on the backs of our cars. These are the kind of verses that uh, you would, if you ever buy a, a journal, like a blank journal in the Christian bookstore, this is the kind of verse that's just on the bottom of every other page. These are the kind of verses that uh, hipster Christians tattoo on their forearms, present company excluded, Bill. Uh, these are the kind of verses that soccer moms have on their coffee mugs with glitter and flowers and all these sorts of things. These are the verses that we know. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. You've heard this before, right? You've heard this before. In fact, that's part of the danger of preaching such familiar verses is that we think we know. And for those of us who've grown in the church or been, you know, grown up around Christianity for some little time, sometimes it's dangerous to hear the verses preached to us that, that we already know so well because what happens is we end up reacting like the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Remember him and Jesus is speaking to him about what needs to be saved and he mentions the law and the rich young ruler says, all these I've done since my youth. Yeah, right. Nobody's done all this since their child. But we tend to think that about these verses. We know them. And so what could the pastor say this morning 
about these particular verses that I haven't already heard 10,000 times. And trust me, just as you're going to struggle with the familiarity of it, so do I struggle as the pastor to teach these verses that undoubtedly I've taught many times before. In fact, I've been teaching this passage since I was a youth pastor. How many times have I I stood at a youth retreat around a campfire with an acoustic guitar on my neck, and I I made some application from these kind of verses, right? And if you've been in the ministry, you've probably taught them too. And so it's actually, ironically, our familiarity with these passages that cause our sinful, lazy eyes to just kind of glaze over what we think we already know. So I'm going to challenge myself, and I'm going to challenge you this morning. Let's look at this text with fresh eyes. Can we do that? Let's do that. In fact, the other problem, there's really two, is that even as we think we know these passages, who can do them? Who can perform this? What is asked of us here in these imperative commands? Is Paul serious? Is Paul serious when he says that we, we should always rejoice? How can I do that? Is Paul honestly and legitimately telling us we should pray without ceasing? A million objections flood into my mind when I think of that command. You? Uh, So let's let's, um, gather up a little bit of context here, and then we'll try to work through this passage in the best that we're able to do. I mentioned last week a little bit of the literary structure of the closing of Paul's letters. Of course, um, Paul's letters tend to be doctrinally heavy in the front end. They're kind of front-loaded with doctrine especially in the, the beginnings and the middle portions of Paul's letters. But then typically what Paul does, I mentioned this last week, is he begins to turn the corner towards application. Classic example, Romans chapter 12, when Paul says the word therefore in the book of Romans, he's shifting his, his focus from the doctrine that we ought to believe to the way that we ought to live and to carry these things out. He does this in most of his letters. And so here he's doing that now in our last couple of paragraphs in 1 Thessalonians. And I think I mentioned this as well last week too, that even Paul's style changes a bit here. As typically Paul has kind of long, windy sentences. He's clearly a deep and and rational thinker. And yet here in the application stages of the closing of this letter, uh, we mentioned it's, it's more like these bullet points, kind of staccato, quick fire applications that he's throwing. It's almost like he's shooting just arrow after arrow at us. Just remember this and remember this and remember this, he goes. And so last week we mentioned that there were nine imperatives in our text. And here we are again today. Interestingly, we have nine more imperatives here. So 18 total, 18 total imperatives in these short couple of lines here. And so we can't do all of that. And so I'm going to just narrow the scope. Just narrow the scope down to these three verses, and we're going to look at three, what I'm going to call perpetual imperatives today. Perpetual meaning that they're ongoing. Because look at the language. He says, rejoice always, so that's perpetual, and pray without ceasing, so that continues to go on, and then give thanks in all circumstances. So these three things are kind of united by this one fact that they are perpetual, they're ongoing, and yet they're also imperatives which means that they are given to us in the grammatical mode of command. You are to do these things. Do this. Do this. All right, so let's take each one of these one at a time and see what we can can figure out here. So the first one. The first perpetual command is rejoice always. When shall I rejoice? Answer, always. All the time. There you go. 
And as soon as I hear that, I think to myself, well, I can't do that. I don't do that. Do you do that? Are you always rejoicing? If, if this is a statement about emotion, then it's impossible to carry out. Who can do this? None of us can do this. If Paul is literally saying something like this, uh, Thessalonians, I want you to just always be in a good mood. Is that what he's saying? Is that really what Paul is asking of us? That cannot be it. And that can't be it. And the reason I know that that can't be it is that does not match our experiences. Nobody is in a good mood all the time. Nobody can possibly rejoice all the time. Now listen, uh, if we're completely honest, we all have different personalities here, right? Every single one of us in the room has a different personality. And we could probably line up in a long continuum everywhere from uh, the, the deeply melancholic type personalities, those of you who tend to see everything in, in kind of a, a blue shade of, of uh of dismal pessimism. So some of you, one of you has to be the furthest down the line here, the most melancholic of us. And then we might just kind of line up all the way to the most sanguine of us, which is those of us who tend to see things through optimistic, rosy glasses. We're usually quite cheerful. We have a, a genuinely delightful comportment in terms of our personality. We could line up on a, on a continuum from blue to, to pink, blue to rosy, and none of us would perform this. None of us is always rejoicing. And so we should ask a couple of questions here that might help us to understand this a little better. First question, did Paul always rejoice? If, the, if this is a command of mood or emotion, did Paul himself perform it? My answer, I don't think so. And the reason I don't think that Paul did this, if, if this is about emotion, is that I have a lot of data on Paul in the book of Acts and in his letters, and that lot of data shows me that Paul had a whole different range of moods and emotions, and he is not always rejoicing. In fact, uh, very quickly, let me just mention a couple of these in Acts chapter 14, 14. Paul is so grieved, he actually tears his garments because they called him a god after he did a miracle, and he's not a god, and it, and it burned him up, and so he tore his garments with anger. And in Acts 16, 18, it says that Paul is greatly annoyed by that demonic girl that kept following them around in the city of Philippi. He's greatly annoyed by that. And, and in Acts chapter 17, it says that Paul is provoked by the idols of Athens, which means he's like furiously, righteously indignant by their idolatry. He's not happy there. In Acts chapter 21, it says that the Christians in Jerusalem were breaking his heart in Galatians 1.6. Paul is clearly furious with the Galatians, and he says, I am astonished. I'm astonished that you so quickly turned away from the gospel. And so when we look at Paul himself, it becomes fairly obvious that this man has a full panoply of emotions that he experiences, just like every other one of us. In fact, uh, far from rejoicing always, I have a suspicion just from what I know about Paul that he was a probably a pretty stern and serious person most of the time. He's always going around saying he's ready to die for Christ and things like that. Okay, so clearly Paul has a range of emotions. We might also ask, um, if this is a statement about emotions, is that what we see, for instance, in the Psalms? The Psalms are, according to John Calvin, the anatomy of the soul. I like that phrase because it tells us all the things that we feel. The Psalms, if anything, are the prayer book of Israel in which the psalm writers inspired as they are. David, writing quite a majority of the psalms, 
Uh, the psalm writers are experiencing all kinds of emotions. And, and so here's a challenge for you. Uh, this is your homework. Later today, I want you to open up to the book of Psalms at random. Okay, At random. And I want you to begin highlighting or circling all of the different emotions that are described on that two-page spread and just that two-page spread. And what you're going to find is that you are going to see this whole broad range of emotional experience. You're going to see the psalm writer distressed and you're going to see the psalm writer at peace and you're going to see him yearning for God and crying aloud and rejoicing. Oh yes, plenty of rejoicing, no doubt about that. That's why we sing the psalms, okay? because they're full of joy and extolling and singing and seething and jealousy and fear and delight and gladness, all of these things. And yet sometimes, ironically, they'll be on the same page and even within the same psalm. Even within the same song. Okay? But somebody says, well, wait a second. Okay, yeah, David and Paul, but they're sinners. What about Christ? Is he always rejoicing? Well, curiously enough, today happens to be Palm Sunday. Go with me to Luke chapter 19 for just one moment. And let's have a look at what Luke says. Luke chapter 19 about Palm Sunday. Now, if you know the Gospels, you already know the answer to my question, and that is that Jesus does experience a whole range of human emotions. He is without sin. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is flawless. Jesus is tempted but never sins. And yet here, isn't this interesting that in Luke's account of the great day of Palm Sunday, while the, all the multitudes of the people are rejoicing up there in verse 37 or, or so, yet what do we see in verse 41 of the same chapter? And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And here we see the second time in the scriptures that we're told explicitly that the Lord Christ wept and you know the other place because it's john eleven thirty five, 35 that two word bible verse that you mentioned for points in sunday school class because it was the easiest verse to memorize two words jesus wept and he was weeping again and it's true that when we look at the gospels and we look at the range of the emotions of jesus we do see him rejoicing yes no doubt about that that Jesus does certainly rejoice in the Spirit, Luke 10, 21, but we also see him grieved. We also see him angry. And here we even see him weeping. So the idea that 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 is a simple statement about be cheerful all the time. Be happy all the time. It just doesn't, just doesn't flush with scriptural teaching on the emotions. And that's what makes me think, and I could be wrong, that Paul is actually not talking about emotions here. I think he's talking about something deeper. I think that um, Jonathan Edwards, my, my, my great study buddy and, and friend who died many years before I was born, I think he was actually right about this. Because Jonathan Edwards says that there is a difference between the emotions and the affections. Hang with me here. This is important. Edwards, in his great book, The Religious Affections, 1746, he's talking about what it truly means to be a Christian, and he talks about what he calls the religious 
affections. Now, many of these sound like they're emotions, but they're not. And there's a difference between an emotion and an affection. And the difference between an emotion and affection is, is simply this. The emotions are those swirling moods that you experience throughout the day, right? It, sometimes it's just because you're, you're, you're hungry and you need, a, you need a Snickers bar, right? Your blood sugar's low or whatever. But you're angry and then you're content and then you're jealous and then you're filled with joy and then your, your emotions are all over the place. But the difference, Edwards tells us, between the emotions and the affections is that the emotions, they are driven largely by the circumstances of our lives. A good thing happens, I'm happy. A bad thing happens, now I'm upset. That's my emotions, right? Edwards says, hold on, there's something deeper there afoot. The affections, Edwards says, he defines them as the deeper inclinations of the soul. And these are totally different between believers and unbelievers, especially when it comes to God himself. Because the unbeliever, his affections, he is always going to be repelled by the holiness and the glory of God, the unbeliever is. When the unbeliever thinks upon God, he is repelled by that thought, he is terrified, he is in dread, he is in eternal fear. With the unbeliever, when he sees the Lord or even thinks of the Lord, what he wants to do is turn and flee and run away with all of his strength. And Edward says, but no, the Christian, because the Christian's affections have been transformed. When the Christian thinks on God and the gospel in Christ, he rejoices because he loves the Lord. His affections have been transformed by the gospel. He's been changed at a soul-deep level. And so if you want an illustration for the difference between the emotions and the affections, I want you to picture this in your mind. You ready? I think this is helpful. I made this up this week. I hope this works. The difference between the emotions and the affections is the difference between a weather vane and a compass. All right? A weather vane and a compass. What's a weather vane? You have one on your barn or your roof? What does it do? Spins around, and it'll tell you which way the wind is blowing. It usually has a rooster or, a, or an arrow or north, south, east, west. And the weather vane will change 50 times in a day multiple times in an hour. All the weather vane does, it gives you helpful information, but it simply tells you what way the wind is blowing right now, right? You might need to know that. Emotions are helpful, but they're swirling and ever-changing. Now, by contrast, what does a compass do? Also an effective, helpful tool? Yes. The point of the compass, though, is that you take it out into the woods whenever you're lost, and that thing, is, if it's working, is always going to point true north, true north. Always. No matter which direction you're going, it always points back to what is true and what is right. It is constant. It is fixed. It does not depend on your circumstances. It's always pointing north. And so the affections are what points us always to those things in the Lord, those things in the gospel in which we always have cause to rejoice. Always doesn't matter the circumstances. You can always fix the compass on the true north of the gospel because you always have something to rejoice in, namely the goodness of God, his holiness, the truth of the scriptures, the beauty of Christ, the glory of the cross, the surety of your salvation, the presence of your spirit. And so a believer can look at this text and he can say, yes, rejoice always because Christ is always good and beautiful and true. So rejoice always. We're not talking about your mood. We're not talking about your affections. We're ta- I'm sorry, your emotions. We are talking, however, about the affections of your soul. All right? 
So let's move on to our second perpetual imperative then, and that is this one. Paul says, secondly, that we are to pray without ceasing. All right? You do that? Raise your hand if you're doing that. (laughs) No hands. Turns out it's pretty hard to pray. At least I think it is. I have a hard time praying for five minutes sometimes without breaking concentration. So when Paul tells me to pray without ceasing, uh, my soul wants to just kind of scream out objections like, well, what about when I'm sleeping? What about when I'm eating? What about when I'm working? What about when I'm busy? What about when I have to concentrate on something else? Can I pray then? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by pray, right? Uh, Prayer is hard. Uh, And not only that, but it seems that when we look at the Gospels, that actually long prayers come with warnings, ironically enough. Uh, Listen to this warning from from Matthew chapter uh, 6. Matthew 6 and verse 7. uh, Jesus says here in Matthew, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So the point is definitely not to pray as long as you possibly can, right? Short prayer, faithful prayer, heart prayer, just as significant as any long prayer that you can spin out. Now, a little dashboard confession for you this morning. I have a really hard time with prayer. I do, and I'm ordained, so that's embarrassing to admit. In fact, I, uh, all of my training, all my academic training, my degrees are in theology and Bible and things like that. You'd think that if somebody was really good at praying, it'd be me. And I have a hard time with it. If I had a choice between doing some work in my, in my Bible, studying the Bible, and praying, maybe, maybe it's just the way I'm, I'm made, I don't know. I, I would probably choose doing work in my Bible, to be honest. If I was sitting at a, at a bench and waiting for a train and I had 15 minutes before the train came, I'd probably rather study my Bible than pray. Why is that? I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just the way I'm, I'm wired. Maybe I'd just like to be doing something. I think that's part of my problem is that when I'm studying the Bible, there's a tangibility factor to it, right? I mean, think about this with me for just a moment. When you're studying your Bible, you're doing stuff. You're turning pages. You're underlining sections. At least I am. I've got my highlighters out. I'm highlighting things. I'm taking notes in the margins. I've got all my notebooks that I I tend to write notes in. I'm making my own cross-references in the margins. When I'm doing my Bible study, I'm checking off the boxes on my read the Bible in a year plan. How many of you have one of those? And when you read the Bible, there's something tangible about it so that you can recognize I'm doing something. I'm making progress here. And that's what makes prayer so hard is that in all of the ways that Bible study is tangible, prayer seems to defy that tangibility factor. Now, you can definitely do things to try to make prayer more tangible. Uh, you can, for instance, you can walk when you pray. Uh, for instance, you can pray in a written journal. So that's tangible, right? Because now you're seeing your progress. One of the best things that I've ever done to help my own prayer life is I've had this little notebook. It's right there in my backpack, and I simply write my prayers in my tiny little notebook, and I pray through them regularly. 
So that helps me because now I'm seeing what I'm doing and I'm actually working on something and I'm making progress working through my prayers. But I'm going to be honest with you, there's a lot of techniques that you can use to improve your prayer life. And if you want some good books on techniques on prayer, then consult Andrew Murray, uh, consult Brother Lawrence, consult even Martin Luther wrote a very practical book on prayer to his barber. It's one of the shortest and easiest things Luther ever wrote. So I'll just tell you this, if, if you're looking for prayer technique, there's plenty of good books out there on that topic, but I've got to be honest with you, I, I don't think that Paul is actually talking about technique of prayer in this text. I don't, I don't, think, he's, I don't think he's giving us, get a prayer journal type of advice here. What, what is he saying? Well, he says, Pray without ceasing, and humanly speaking, of course, that would be impossible to do. But I think actually that it might be better to think of this as an application of and an outworking of the doctrine of union with Christ. Okay, Have you heard of the doctrine of union with Christ before? Give me a little nod if you've, if you've heard of this. So undoubtedly you've heard of predestination in a Presbyterian church. Undoubtedly, you've heard of doctrines of justification and sanctification. You've heard many of these doctrines about the salvation of the soul. One of the doctrines that you need to know of is called union with Christ. And you, as a believer, you have been united to your Christ in a very deep and profound level such that your union with Christ is actually covenantal, right? Is this beginning to connect a little bit? Some synapses firing here? Your union with Christ is covenantal. One of the things that you can do that's interesting in your New Testament is look up all of the times that the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, you are in Christ. You are united to Him as a father is united to a son, as a brother is united to another brother, as a friend is united to a friend, but an even deeper level than that. In fact, listen to this from Colossians chapter 2 on union with Christ. Listen to this. Paul writing here, he says, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, ready, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Whoa, what does that mean? Say that again. Your life is hidden. You are enfolded into. You are absorbed up into. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. There is an inseparability between you and Christ now because of his work as covenant mediator. It's not just like you decided one day I'm going to follow Jesus and one day you're just going to decide not to anymore. It doesn't work that way. You are covenantally united to him as Lord and as servant. And therefore, even when you cannot pray, check this out. He is where? He is ascended to the right hand of the Father where he even now intercedes for you. And so if you think of prayer just kind of on that narrow definition of say prayers, make prayer words come out of your mouth, then of course it's impossible to fulfill this. But if you think of this as an application of the doctrine of union with Christ, then yes, you are in fact united to him at all times, unbreakably so. So converse with him freely. Converse with him freely, regularly, and frequently. You can do so. Okay. 
final one here, and we will treat this more briefly than the other two, but Paul does also say then to give thanks in all circumstances. This is our third perpetual imperative, give thanks in all circumstances. And I know that, that that's very hard for a lot of us because right now there's a lot of us, even in the room, who are going through some dreadful circumstances. And you can put that on a t-shirt if you want, and it'll cheer up your day sometimes, and put that on a bracelet if you want, give thanks in all circumstances. I know that there's a, there's a cheering effect that that has on our hearts when we think about these kinds of things, but, but the reality is, for a lot of us, life is pretty hard, right? And so this is, we're just going to have to place this in the category of easier said than done, to give thanks. We're supposed to. But it's hard. And, and, I, and I know for a fact that some of you right now, you're sitting here, you're fi- your body is physically in pain. It's not hard to give, I'm sorry, it's not easy to give thanks when you're physically in pain, is it? It's not easy. And I know others of you, you're, you're sitting here and you're trying to pay attention, you're dutifully listening and taking notes, but your heart is with somebody else that you know and you love, and they're going through a really rough time right now. Maybe it's your parents. Uh, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a friend, but your heart is with somebody else out there in the world and they're struggling and so it's hard for you to give thanks. And others of you, you're looking at your life right now and to be honest, it's kind of a mess and, and you did it, no, no question about that. You messed up your finances, you messed up your, your vocation, uh, you've done something to yourself that's caused yourself all kinds of woe and difficulty right now and so you look at a verse like this, give thanks in all circumstances and you want to just say, Pastor Matt, that is just all too glib for me right now. How can I do that? When I'm in such emotional and physical pain, how can I give thanks? Well, I don't know that what I'm going to say next is, is going to solve all your problems. In fact, it's not. But I will tell you this. There are two things that you need to know about your God. Okay, two things that I want you to remember for the rest of your life. First, your God is good. He is a good God. He has a kind heart for you. There's a merciful, benevolent aspect in which he is truly and sincerely good and gracious to you, Christian believer. Okay. The second thing you need to know about your God is that he is also great. He is good and He is great. And when you combine those two factors, and they're both true, then you have an extraordinary God, don't you? Because if you think about this logically, what if God was good but He wasn't great? Huh? Well, He'd be certainly a soft shoulder to come to, but He couldn't do much. If your God was good but He wasn't great, then He might be compassionate, He might see you favorably, He might see you mercifully in His eyes, but when you came to Him with your greatest of problems, if He was good but not great, He could not actually do anything for you. And so what good would prayer be then? It'd be no good to you. Because you'd be calling out to a God that can't help. And yet, conversely, if God was great but He wasn't good, well, then you're in a world of hurt, aren't you? Because if God was strong And if God was sovereign and if God was mighty over all the things that he made, but you couldn't trust his heart for you, then you would have all sorts of reasons to fear coming to that God. If he could crush you, but you didn't know that he loved you, then you would have every reason to dread him like the unbeliever dreads God. But the fact of the matter is this. 
is that our God is not only good, but he is also great. He is good and he is great. And therefore, you can always trust him that no matter what you are seeing in your life, no matter what the circumstances are, to use Paul's word, in all circumstances I can give thanks to him because I know that he is working all things for the good of those who love him, Romans 8. So, can you really rejoice always? Well, not if it depends on your strength. Can you really pray in all circumstances? Well, not if it depends on you. Can you truly give thanks in all circumstances? Again, if it's up to you, then no. But, but if it depends all on Christ, if He is our joy, and He is our sanctification, and He is the one who intercedes for us even when we cannot intercede for Him to Him, and if He is, in fact, so good and so great that we can trust Him with all things, then yes, absolutely, we can give thanks in all circumstances. Let's go ahead and stand. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.